Hello and welcome to this episode of the EMJ podcast. In place of our usual host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, this episode will be hosted by me, Evgenia Kutsuki, the editor of the EMJ family of journals. With the leaves starting to fall and the temperature dropping with them, we thought that it would be an excellent time to look back on the interviews we heard when the summer sun was keeping us warm. So put on your favorite jumper and settle down with a hot cup of cocoa as we explore some of the most memorable and interesting moments from the last few months. With the UK still reeling from the death of the country's longest serving monarch, we feel that it is right to start this podcast by looking back on one of our guests who had the opportunity of meeting Queen Elizabeth II. Sir Michael Brady, who is Professor of Oncological Imaging at the University of Oxford in the UK, reflected on his memorable meeting with the Queen when he was being knighted in the 2004 New Year's Honours for his services to engineering. Well, getting the knighthood was pretty scary, actually, because the Queen, delightful, absolutely delightful woman, the Queen is pretty short, and so she stood on a little um, uh, like shelf and holding this sword that she taps you on both shoulders with. The only problem was as you walk along towards her and to kneel down, the sword was waving and I thought, my God, I'm going to come out of this looking like Vincent van Gogh. We're happy to say Sir Michael did come away from the meeting with both his ears still in place, but we are sure that he was even happier. In the same interview, Sir Michael explained the importance of international collaborations in coming up with new ideas for treatments and technologies. However, he also emphasised the importance of two necessary traits when collaborating. I think the fundamental thing, uh, Jonathan, that I start from is that deep problems do not respect nationality, race or religion. The most important ingredients are integrity and trust. You can't share your ideas with somebody if you suspect that they'll rip you off and present your ideas as theirs. So Michael was not the only guest to discuss collaborating with others. In his interview with Jonathan, Dr. Fred T. Lee, Professor of Radiology, Biomedical Engineering and Urology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the USA, discussed working with experts from other disciplines, primarily the engineering department at his university, to provide solutions and to improve current treatments and technologies. As the 1990s went on, and I became a little bit more familiar with some of the incredible people around me here at Wisconsin, I started to talk to engineers and medical physicists and physicians from other specialties and realized that we might be able to overcome some of the limitations of the current devices. Dr. Lee detailed different treatments for cancer, including tumor ablations, and where the future of treating cancer lies in robotics. However, he stressed the importance of applying different approaches in curing cancer. Cancer in particular, which is my area of interest, is such a complex and terrible opponent that there's not one tool, there's not one specialty, there's not one procedure that's going to cure it. We need everything to throw at it. And when every time I hear about miracle cures, and this is all you need to do, and both in the public press, and I have to say, sometimes some of our peers 
speak that way about a particular treatment, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit because we all know how humbling treating cancer is. You think you do a great job at something, and maybe you do, but it's it's just something else how cancer somehow seems to be so resilient that it can get around even our best treatments. And and so we need everything. We have to throw surgery and and all the minimally invasives and non-invasive treatments that we have, drug therapies, radiation, we need everything. Dr. Hugo Davila, who's a clinical assistant professor at Florida State University in the USA, also discussed robotics in his field of urology and how artificial intelligence is used in radiographic image and pathology reporting. So we'll continue seeing uh, more robotic companies getting into the robotics uh, market. Okay, By doing that, the cost of robotic surgery is going to decrease. We'll continue seeing uh, more artificial intelligence in our field. An example of that, there are some papers looking at how to read an MRI of the prostate and as well how to read a biopsy of the prostate uh, and they compare that with artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is performing as good or sometimes even better than a pathologist or radiologist. So we're going to see in the following years artificial intelligence reading our biopsies and MRI of the prostate as well. Patients often wish to avoid certain procedures, so Dr. Davila described some alternatives to transvaginal mesh repairs. However, while less invasive, the long-term results may not be as good as the patient and physicians would like them to be. So as we mentioned, a lot of patients come to the practice, you know, saying, Dr. Davila, I don't want any mesh, period. And then you you have to discuss with them the the outcome of using mesh and non-mesh. So we know that when we are giving the support with mesh, the long-term success is about 90%. So 90% of patients at five years will still not have any pelvic organ prolapse after surgery. However, when we don't provide the mesh, the, the failure rate can be as high as 40% at five years. So, so you need to understand that if we don't use mesh because you say, I don't want to have, we have options for you, but the long-term outcome may not be the best. And before you make a decision, you need to know those numbers. Number two, we, in, 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 in the pursuing of, of trying to provide uh, many options to our patients, so we look into and a non-mesh surgery for to correct pelvic organ prolapse. And as well, uh, you know, we did a single side, which is, you know, you only remember when we were talking about four arms and, you know, so we are using three arms in this approach through one hole, okay? So one, can, one arm is holding the camera and the other two are using the instrument and we're going through one tiny hole, which is about two centimeters in diameter. So is, is cosmetically is, is very in, less, is the less invasive approach that you can have. If in this time, if this type uh, of surgery, which is not related to cancer, I think is a great option. And uh, we did what we call a uterosacral ligament 
suspension. So we did multiple sutures and trying to reinforce the ligament that is not holding the organ anymore. And then, um, you know, at one year, the success rate was about 80, 85 percent, you know, and then slowly when we see a two year that we haven't published that data yet and three year, it started decreasing to 70 percent success. So as we see, when we are not using mesh, we are not able to hold that organ uh, long term. So, and you may need a second surgery later on in life, or you may need a vaginal pessary later on if you fail that surgery. While on the topic of patient choices, it is difficult to forget Jonathan's interview with Dr. Uwe Gudat, who's chief medical officer at Aretius Saal in Geneva in Switzerland. While discussing evidence-based medicine and how overzealous treatment can actually worsen a patient's condition, Dr. Gudat explained why patients with diabetes do not always listen to their doctor's recommendations, also referring to the hesitancy around the COVID vaccinations. There's a lot more going on in a patient's life than, than their health. And yes, health is essential to be able to do all the other things that you want to do, but it's not the only thing. In other words, we're competing with all the other things that drawing attention from a patient. And I think the vaccine hesitancy issue that we're seeing most recently in terms of COVID also shows that just because we say so doesn't mean that anybody believes so. Dr. Gudat was not the only guest who discussed vaccination hesitancy. Dr. Adam Fox, who is a consultant paediatric allergist at Guy's and St. Thomas's hospitals in London in the UK and chair of the UK National Allergy Strategy Group, spoke to me about patient attitudes to the COVID-19 vaccination after concerns surrounding adverse reactions during the vaccine rollout. So allergies have in the past year been on the news because of concerns surrounding the COVID vaccines. What do you say to those who are still sceptical about the vaccine, fearing severe allergic reactions? Is this fear justified? Well, there's no doubt the most common question that I get asked by by, by patients and, and in fact non-patients now um, is, you know, is the vaccine safe? Am, am I going to have an allergic reaction to it? And a and a real um, presumption that people who have allergic issues already, you know, whether it's um, hay fever or, or or food allergies, that that they're going to be at a heightened risk of having the COVID vaccine. Um, I, I remember very very distinctly a, a day in December of um, 2020, when um, the vaccine program was launched, and you know, I didn't have any involvement whatsoever in it. I, I knew a number of people that did, just because allergists and immunologists, um, but like everybody else, was extraordinarily excited about the, you know, the, get this vaccine coming along. And then, in the first day of the vaccine rollout, when of course there was an enormous focus, and, and bear in mind that in the UK, of course, we were we were the first ones with with the vaccine, so we were literally the eyes of the world on us. And there were two very severe allergic reactions, and I, I remember when the news started filtering through, there was a little bit of, um, you know, certainly amongst colleagues, a little bit of dismissiveness about saying, oh, you know, it was probably a, you know some hives or you know a little bit of a, a rash. And then I I knew there was a problem when I got a call from the MHRA, which is the um, the regulator in the UK, 
Um, at the time, I was president of the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and along with a couple of other colleagues, we were asked to come along to a expert working, working group where it wasn't really a, a, an invitation. It was very much a, a, an order um, to attend this meeting. And at the meeting, we, we got to hear from the director of um, one of the hospitals who had been involved in the rollout. Um, and actually, he was a, 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 a intensivist, so somebody absolutely used to dealing with um, um, very sick patients. And he was present at one of these allergic reactions because he'd obviously been there for the launch of the um, of the vaccine program. And, and he described very clearly an anaphylaxis. You know, there was no doubt this was the real deal. Um, and we realized that, yeah, th- th- there'd only been about 1,500 jabs given and, and a couple of severe reactions. We had to work very quickly to ensure that we had sensible advice um, to um, support the MHRA in making recommendations to ensure the safety of everybody and at the same time ensuring that, um, that there was continued confidence in, in the vaccine programme. You know, it wasn't just a matter of saying we've got to stop this because there might be, that there might be allergic reactions. There was a, um, a need for the vaccines to be rolled out as quickly as possible. In this interview, Dr. Fox also provided insights into the evolution of food allergy and explored the approach of using desensitization to certain food allergens, such as peanuts. As an expert advisor to the National Institute of Healthcare and Clinical Excellence Center, amongst your other impactful roles uh, in the allergy field, how would you say that the management of food allergy has evolved over the past few years? I think of all the areas that I deal with as an allergist, the, the, the one that's been most exciting to be involved in where there's been the most innovation and change has been in food allergy. And if I think back to when we started the allergy service at Guy's and St. Thomas's, so 2006, 16 years ago, um, things really were very different. It's, 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 it's hard actually to imagine that the way we used to practice because it was, it was quite frustrating. It was really essentially we were acting as a diagnostic service. Um, we were t- identifying from histories and allergy testing what people were allergic to. But we didn't really have anything to offer them other than saying, well, this is what you're going to have to avoid. Be very careful. Speak to our dietitians who are brilliant at educating patients, at ensuring that they can have as full a diet as possible whilst carefully avoiding the things that they're allergic to. But beyond that, it was really crossing your fingers and, and, and hoping it was outgrown, seeing them again in a year or two and repeating the tests and see if things have changed. So as a, as a, as a physician, not an enormously sort of fulfilling area of medicine because you want to do more. You want to, 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 to make the allergies go away or be better or make them safer somehow. And there, there was not really an obvious way to do that. And, and in the course of the next sort of 10 years, we saw such a dramatic range of different things happening. So early research that was showing promise in a whole range of different areas around um, preventing food allergies, um, about ways of managing food allergies that became a reality very quickly. The most common allergies we deal with milk and egg, the introduction of allowing children to trial baked egg and baked milk, of which the majority of them were fine with, was a real game changer. And that opened up the whole door of desensitization. And, and you know, now here we are um, a number of years later with a fully licensed peanut desensitization project uh, product. Um, but also a lot of interest around the potential role of pre and probiotics influencing disease course which has sadly not quite developed in the in in the way that we'd hoped and and i remember in 2014 we published an article with colleagues about what we described as the active management of food allergy of of moving away from what was very much a passive process of making a diagnosis and then sitting back and 
hoping, um, to a more active process where we had a whole range of um, interventions around active introduction of other foods. So if you if you've diagnosed an egg allergy, actively encouraging the patients to get peanut into their diet to try and prevent them from developing a peanut allergy, which they're otherwise at high risk of. Um, the, um, the, the the use of desensitization, which has now become very much part of everyday practice. All of this felt like we were actually doing things. Um, and so it was now much more of an active process. And it's really nice to see over time that that's got real traction and that um, you know, globally from all over the place, we're now seeing really exciting research and changes in practice that, that reflect this. So um, we're in a much better place, but there is still so much further to go. We, we are a, a mile away from curing food allergy, but there's an increasing number of angles and we're seeing um, the whole field of food desensitization pretty much explode with during the summer, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Peter Arkwright, an expert in paediatric allergy and immunology living in Manchester. During this episode, Dr. Arkwright brainstormed some of the reasons why there is increasing prevalence of allergies, using peanuts as an example of how food allergies are affected by weaning choices. Discussing a bit more about allergies, uh, they are becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, the World Allergy Organization estimated that up to 40% of the country's population uh, has an allergy. What do you think could be the leading causes behind this level of prevalence? For example, could something like climate change be responsible for the increased number of individuals with allergies? Okay, so great question. And um, as you suggest, Allergies have indeed become more common, um, particularly since I started as a specialist about 20 years ago. Um, so, for instance, when I started, um, we had a clinic once a month and we were lucky to get one or two patients being referred to the clinic. Um, in Manchester and in many other centres, um, we now have over 10 clinics a week and with a waiting list of six months or more. So um, allergy, particularly children's allergy, also allergy in adults, is becoming more common and it's really becoming more and more difficult for doctors in the field to keep up with the demand and the workload. So you ask them um, what's driving this? Um, is it climate change? Uh, I put it to you that rather than climate change, it's more likely to be lifestyle changes um, that have been in the heart of the allergy pandemic. Um, particularly over the last 20 years, people um, with computers are now sitting more at home. Um, they're going out less, they're um, playing less sport, they're getting less mucky um, outside um, and this is part of the urbanisation theory, um, which suggests that a lack of interaction with the dirt and, and um, the muck outside um, may be promoting allergies. The other major factor that, to my mind, has led or helped to lead to the pandemic in food allergies is actually um, young parents' vision in terms of how to wean their children. Um, until quite recently, um, most parents were told not to wean their children onto certain foods 
during infancy and early childhood. And for instance, peanut and peanut containing foods in the Western world, um, parents were told to wait until they were around five. And the problem with that, as we now know, um, is that if you delay the introduction of certain foods, then children do not learn how to become tolerant to those foods and become allergic. And the case in point is really a seminal study that was published by Professor Gideon Lack and his team from London called the LEAP study, um, which was published seven years ago. Um, and LEAP stands for learning early about peanuts. And what he did is he um, got two groups of children. One group, he asked the parents to avoid peanut or peanut containing foods. And the other group, he asked them to introduce peanut butter and peanut snacks, obviously not peanuts themselves that the child could choke on, at an early age, around six months of age. And he found that the group um, of parents who introduced their children to peanuts earlier had a much reduced risk of peanut allergy than those that avoided it. And what we're trying to do now based on these findings is um, make sure that parents know um, the results of this amazing study um, and introduce foods earlier rather than later. So to give children the best chance of becoming tolerant to foods rather than um, to actually develop allergies. In his interview, Dr. Arkwright also delved into emerging infections, including monkeypox and hepatitis C, and how social distance could have a negative impact on the immune system. We've recently observed spikes in certain infections that have made the news. For example, hepatitis of unknown etiology in children, and there was a recent surge in monkeypox, uh, which the WHO declared as a global emergency. Do you think these are a manifestation of how the pandemic and social distancing could have maybe affected our immunity? Um, there will always be um, an interaction between the microbe um, and us human beings. And actually, um, there have always been um, pandemics and microbes with um, they've been around for three billion years, three billion years longer than us. So they're always a step ahead in terms of finding niches um, to infect and invade. And um, I suppose with time, human beings have learnt to um, become immune to these um, microbes. But if we isolate then we sometimes lose immunity. And one of the examples recently um, is the spate of um, hepatitis, liver inflammation in young children. Um, and there was some suggestion now, which research has suggested that it's because young children are not exposed to certain viruses, including adenovirus, um, when they're very young, and exposure at a later age may lead to more inflammation. So yes, um, changes in behavior, 
not only affects um, the prevalence of allergy, as we've discussed, um, but also um, um, affects the prevalence of certain um, infectious diseases, as with the example I've just given with um, um, infantile or, or paediatric hepatitis. Jonathan was back hosting when he interviewed Dr. Smita Sinha, consultant nephrologist at the Salford Royal Hospital, Manchester in the UK. Like Dr. Arkwright, Dr. Sinha discussed how changing lifestyles have led to increases in a particular condition. This time it was diabetes and Dr. Sinha highlighted how early detection and intervention can prevent progression of diabetic kidney disease. Yeah, I think this is this is kind of my mission as my uh, national clinical advisor role because diabetic kidney disease is 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 one of it, it, well it is the commonest cause of end stage kidney disease of progressive kidney disease um, and we follow the US so diabetes as a whole is increasing um, across um, the UK um, because our population is changing where. We, we look different, we weigh more, but we also we, we also do less. Um, but it is more than weigh more, do less. There are um, health inequalities associated with that. Your ethnicity influences your likelihood to get diabetes. And it also influences your likelihood of getting complications from diabetes. And diabetic kidney disease is, is a complication of, of diabetes. If you've had type 2 diabetes or um, for more than 10 years, chances are you will have diabetic kidney disease. But whether your kidney disease gets worse and you end up on dialysis depends on how you manage it and how early it's detected. Um, so we're really lucky in many ways. You can detect diabetic kidney disease at the point where it's potentially reversible because we have a fantastic biomarker called a urine albumin creatinine ratio. It's just a urine test really simple urine test that will tell you if you've got early disease and if you catch it at that point the interventions um, are fairly straightforward um, to say um, I mean obviously losing weight isn't straightforward but controlling your diabetes we've got a whole range of therapies that are available including some that will help you lose weight so the newer drugs are um, not just weight neutral, they will promote weight loss as well as glycemic control. And we're now starting to see that some of those newer diabetic drugs also reduce your risk of cardiovascular events and progression of CKD. So there are therapies there that can help with the um, range of diabetic complications, including diabetic kidney disease. Um, so if it's identified with that simple urine test early, then you can really go hard at the lifestyle as well as therapeutic interventions that we have at our disposal, which are also increasing. But if it isn't detected, so if they don't have that urine done, then eventually their kidney function will fall. And often by that time, the process is, is in place, the damage is done. Um, and then we're just trying to slow things down as much as possible. So um, from a policy point of view, um, whether that be regionally or, you know, actually even on an individual basis, if there's any diabetics out there, do please get your annual urine ACR check. Um, and if there's any um, medics out there, you don't need an early morning urine. Any urine will do. Spot urine, urine albumin um, and target those people at risk, the diabetics, but also the hypertensives. In this episode, Dr. Sinha highlighted calciphylaxis and the devastating effects that it can have on patients on dialysis, to the point where some would rather die than continue treatment. 
However, she gave hope in the form of a phase three randomized control trial seeking to reduce blood vessel calcification. Yeah, so um, we published the study design and that was on the back of the phase two data, which was small numbers, but it suggested, and you have to be careful with small numbers, um, that there was a drug that could prevent um, further calcification of uh, blood vessels and actually lead to wound healing and a reduction in pain. So that's why I think the community is quite excited about it. Um, last year, we published the study design, which is the paper you're referring to. Um, and we had to do a robust study because otherwise these drugs will never be available to our patients. So it is a bog standard randomized control trial where Half the people get the study drug and half the people get nothing. Um, but the challenge with study like that is if you've got such a rare, painful condition, it seems unfair that somebody's going to get nothing. So we designed the trial so that after three months, everybody would get an opportunity to get study drug. Um, so that's so everybody received it for another three months. Um, as you said, we finished recruiting. I'm not privy to the to um, the data as it is um, but we should hopefully report out towards the end of next year recruitment has finished um, but the patients obviously need to finish the trial there are some still going through but it is an international trial um, so hopefully we'll get some data that represents populations not just in one country but all over the place Um, and fingers crossed I think is all I can say at this stage. Two of our guests detailed why they went into their specialty including Dr. Robert Delaval from Aurora, Colorado in the USA, who explained that dermatologists are the happiest people in hospitals. I, I always felt like I would be a scientist and uh, I was attracted to the physician scientist program at the University of Chicago. Uh, I applied to that after graduating from UCLA and enjoyed uh, studying medicine with the illustrious faculty at the University of Chicago. And I found that the dermatologists were the happiest doctors in the hospital. So that uh, naturally attracted me to the specialty. I was uh, completing a MD, PhD program. So I studied molecular genetics with Susan Lindquist and we were doing gene expression studies for one of the proteins, which is expressed during stress in Drosophila. And it was amplified to help with heat tolerance in that fruit fly by Michael Velte. Some of those studies also in Drosophila at the time showed some uh, gene expression patterns specific to skin cancer, namely sonic hedgehog expression in basal cell carcinoma. So I knew that my genetic research could be applied in dermatology. A little different from our usual guests, Dr. Joubert Gamma provided a wonderful insight into why he chose to leave general practice to become a medical consultant in the pharmaceutical industry. What took you into the pharmaceutical industry? Um, I was a GP in the UK for around 10 years. I mean, I, I mean, I had started off in, like you, I mean, surgery, trauma, casualty jobs. But while after a few years in general practice, I really reached a point and I felt that my brain was like desperate for stimulation and I just needed to get out. Um, so I kind of looked around for inspiration for a next move. And, and it was very difficult because at the time, 
you felt like you were a failure if you were leaving something like a career in in general practice but Luckily, I did a career seminar, which just opened my eyes to the fact that there were a number of people who attended who were all doctors at different stages of their careers, from house officers to professors, and everybody just wanted to do something different. While Dr. Gamma may have left general practice, we did have the opportunity to hear from an Essex-based general practitioner, Dr. Keith Hopcroft. He gave an unforgettable interview where he not only provided insights into the career of a GP, but also gave us a glimpse of his foray into poetry. Somehow I'd managed to persuade two of my colleagues at the magazine I was working for at the time, two two, uh, young ladies, to come and dance on stage in time to the poetry. Um, So there was me, two girls and uh, my stage prop which uh, I can probably hear a whole load of people clicking off as I say this. Uh, my <laughs> stage prop was a, was a stool specimen in a, in a pot. Now, it wasn't a stool specimen. It was, um, it was some, uh, a, a well-known brand of hazelnut spread in a stool, uh, a stool pot, but it, 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 it looked the job, uh, as it were. I, anyway, I, I, I finished the poem with the, the girl dancers, and the finish was my, that rhyming couplet I told you, at which point I threw the stool specimen into the crowd a cue mayhem. Uh, I thought it went brilliantly, um, as but I would, um, but I was never invited back. So make of that what you will. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today on this episode of the EMJ podcast. I would like to thank all the guests who took the time to share their wisdom and experience with us and who have made the EMJ podcasts such interesting and educational listening material. Even outside their usual day-to-day roles at their respective organizations, our guests continue to inspire healthcare professionals. I would also like to thank our usual host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Next week, Jonathan will be back with another fascinating guest, David Crosby, who is the current Head of Prevention and Early Detection Research at Cancer Research UK. We do not want to give too much away about the upcoming interview, but Dr. Crosby will discuss his experience working in oncology prevention research and will speak with Jonathan about his career as a singer in a rock band when he's off the clock. Until next time, I'm Evgenia Kutsuki and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast.